God's holy and inerrant word. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are looking at Matthew chapter 11, the first six stanzas. And what you notice in Matthew chapter 11, verse 1, is a a transition statement. As we've been going through the gospel, I've I've tried to call your attention to the fact that Matthew will make this similar statement sort of over and over in his gospel, almost as though he's using it as as a a heading or a chapter title or something like that. And and notice again in chapter 11, verse 1, uh, that phrase, when Jesus had finished Instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. And so uh, what, the, what Matthew is drawing our attention to is the fact that uh, when we read the gospel, it is an account of the works of Christ and the words of Christ. The works of Christ and the words of Christ. And so we, we alternate between what Jesus said and what he did. And so we just finished chapter 10, which we call the second uh, discourse or the second sermon, if you will. Remember in that that discourse, in that sermon, he's talking about, uh, he's commissioning his 12 disciples. He's sending them out and he's telling them what to expect. And he's saying, look guys, uh, don't expect that people are going to throw out flowers uh, before you as you come into their cities. Many are going to reject you. In fact, what you're going to find is even within families, preaching the gospel can stir up hatred and animosity. Well, lo and behold, what do you think chapters 11 and 12 are going to reveal to us about the ministry of Christ? So far, what we have seen in Matthew's Gospel is that as Jesus has gone out, he's preached the Sermon on the Mount, he's commissioned his disciples. So far, one of the, what we found is that many people receive him openly. Sure, there have been a few instances where the Pharisees have challenged him, Uh, There was the moment when he went in to heal the little girl and people laughed at him when he said she's just sleeping. But for the most part, Jesus has been received warmly. Well, that's coming to an end. Matthew is going to focus in chapters 11 and 12 on the identity of Jesus and negative responses. Negative responses. So in verse 19... We find that he uses the title Son of Man. And here in chapter 11, verse 2, we read about the deeds of the Christ. It's the first time we find the term Christ. 
since chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel. That's probably significant. He is a proclaimer of judgment in verses 20 to 24. In verse 25, he prays to God, referring to God as Father. And he refers to himself as the Son of God. And verse 27, he is, in chapter 12, verse 8, the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees accuse him of being Beelzebul. You see, they try to put on him a different identity. They label him something else. Setting up his statement about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in chapter 12, verses 31 to 32. And chapter 12 ends with a second discussion of judgment and Jesus' confrontation with a totally unexpected party, his mother and his brothers. Much, therefore, of this section deals with Jesus' identity and men's negative reactions to who he is. This section begins with Jesus' completion of teaching directed towards his disciples. He gathered these guys up and gotten them all around them, and he said, okay, I'm sending you out. Here's what to expect. And John the Baptist re-enters the drama. You remember, way back in chapter 4, that Jesus began his public ministry on the basis of one event. John was arrested. And so it's almost as though we've John was arrested, and here we've entered into this Sermon on the Mount and these works of Christ, and then we're circling back around to John now because news of John's arrest launched Jesus' public ministry, and now news of Jesus' ministry gets back to John. And what we're going to find, what Matthew brings out in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, is something very simple for us. Adverse circumstances tempt us to doubt Christ. But if handled properly, will strengthen your faith. Adverse circumstances may tempt you to doubt Christ. But if you handle those properly will strengthen your faith instead. So let's look at this and just a couple of points this morning. Notice first of all in verses 1 through 3 that you ought to bring your doubts to Christ. You ought to bring your doubts to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at this together. Look with me at verse 2 now. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? So you can imagine this, that um, there's John, he's sitting in jail and maybe he's been there for a year, maybe a year and a half or so. It's, it's been some time and his disciples are still interacting with their families, they're out in the world. And maybe day by day or month by month, they are bringing reports back to John. They can come and visit him, maybe on a periodic basis, and they're telling him what's going on. He said, what did Jesus do today? And they say, well, here's what he did today. And they'll come back the next month. Well, what did he do last month? Well, he raised Peter's mother-in-law from the dead. And they're getting all of these reports, or John is getting these reports. And so now he's, he says, I, I want you to go and ask Jesus 
question. Are you the one to come? Or do we look for another? So what what do you think prompted this question from John? I think I think very simply it's he's sitting in jail. Remember that Joseph sat in jail in Egypt for probably two, at least two, maybe three years. John is sitting here in jail. And do you remember why he was in jail? John was in jail because he preached the word faithfully. He was arrested because of his message. He wasn't in there for bad behavior. He wasn't cutting the heads off parking meters or anything like that. John was thrown into jail because of the message he was preaching. He was not afraid to speak the truth honestly. And here's the thing. John spoke the truth honestly to every single person he met. For instance, all the crowds were gathered around him and what was this message to them? He looked at the crowds and he said, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, he can kind of picture them reasoning within ourselves, who's a brood of vipers? We're Abraham's children. He said, well, I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Luke was not a televangelist. To the soldiers who came to him, he said this, do not extort money or by false, uh, from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Stop shaking people down and be content with your wages. John was not a politician. Finally, here's where he went wrong. John spoke truth to the king's family. So you can imagine John out by the Jordan River baptizing. And along came a certain man. His name was Herod Antipas. And John sees him coming and maybe some are whispering to him and say, John, you know who this is. Okay, this is the king. Be careful what you say. So John says, I hear you, I hear you. And Herod comes up to him and maybe his wife Herodias is there with him. And John looks at him with all honesty and says, your marriage is wicked. The reason he said that to him is because Herod had married Herodias. Herodias formerly was married to Philip. Philip was Herod's brother. And so John is saying, your whole relationship is incestuous. And the guys look at John and are saying, that's not what we had in mind. So at Herodias' request, Herod had him thrown into prison. So I imagine John is sitting there in prison and he's saying, okay, I've been here long enough, I think. I think I was faithful to preach the word. Surely Jesus is going to come visit me at some time and post my bail. Clock's ticking. Let's look now at what John asked. Let's look at what John asked. He asked because he was sitting in prison. And now let's look at what he asked. In verse 3. 
Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus, John is asking Jesus, are you the, literally, are you the coming one? Are, are you the promised one? Are you the one that we were told to look for? And so you think about some of the things we talked about in the Advent season about how Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and all these men were anticipating the coming of one who would crush the devil's head and destroy his works. This is what John, are you that guy? Are you the promised one? But John also clearly understood that he was the forerunner of a greater one who would come after him. Think about Matthew chapter 3. We looked at this some months ago, where John himself said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So you see, John had this anticipation that one would come after him who would do greater works. And he said of him, he who comes after me ranks above me or before me because he existed before me. In Matthew 3, John identified the coming Christ as one coming to judge by fire. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Some of you have if you've heard the sermons on Joel, you identify some of the language there. So John knew someone was coming after him who was strong and mighty and of higher rank than himself. And in John chapter 1, he identified Christ Jesus as that one. Listen to what he said. For from his fullness we have all received, myself included, grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through, and here it is, Jesus Christ. He names him, knowing this is the one. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So you see, I'm setting this up for you so you'll recognize something a little bit odd. Here's John, sitting in prison, probably had never seen any of the actual works of Christ, because remember, Jesus began his public ministry after John was arrested. He's getting these reports, but before he went into jail, what is he proclaiming? Christ is the one. He's the one who has declared the Father to us. He is the one who ranks above me. He is mightier than me. So why in the world do we find in 11.3 that he says, are you the one? Does that not pique your curiosity just a little bit? Seem odd? Earlier this week, I, I sat down on Monday evening and sort of sketched out my outline for this passage so that I could send it to Cassandra and get it in the bulletin for you. And I was about to hit send, and I said, well, I'm going to go read just a couple of commentaries. And I read a couple of commentaries, and they were totally different than the way I was reading this passage. And so I put my email in the draft folder. Because as I read this, I thought, John is, John has, John is doubting here. And so I went and read a, a, three guys, and every one of them said, never say that John is doubting. That's what they said in the commentary. 
I was like, okay, I'm hearing you loud and clear, guys. And I, I'm reading, I'm reading, I go back to this, and I'm thinking about it, and I think, I can't, I, I, I just, I don't understand. And so you read men like John Calvin and, and Matthew Henry and J.C. Ryle, and they say, here's what John is doing. John is telling his disciples to go see Jesus because it's time for him to diminish and Christ to increase. Fair. Here's the weird thing. If that's the case, why does he set it up so that they will have to come back? Go ask Jesus this question, but come back. I need to know the answer. What's happening in this passage is very simple. Like you and me, John expected the Christ to come and to perform certain acts. Actually, remember he said in Matthew chapter 3, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's coming to judge. And it's, it, this here is final. He's stronger than me. He's declaring the word. The kingdom of Israel is going to be restored. I, I think all these expectations were in, in John's mind. And now he's in jail. And he's thinking, well, did I do it wrong? Go ask him. Go ask him. I don't think John's question was really, are you the one? I think John, I think John is sending his disciples to say, ask him this question, but in reality, here's what I want to know. Did you forget about me? I know I'm way down here by the Dead Sea in Herod's, one of his jails. I, I'm here. Your old cousin John. John's question shows us that, that John was a man. Like all men, he was a son of Adam. Remember, he said, we all have received grace upon grace, myself included. And he's affected by the curse. And so his heart is weak, even though perhaps stronger than some of us, maybe many of us. The reason that some commentators deflect John's doubt and try to give a different reason here for what's going on is because all doubt proceeds from sin. All doubt proceeds from sin. You see, if, if your heart was not beset by sin, you'd never have a doubt. You'd never question the truth. I would read the Bible to you and you would say, thus let it be, and all would be good. But there are some, on the other hand, who are saying, well, look, pastor, Doubting is natural. But that's only because the natural man is fallen in sin, do you see? The natural man produces sinful emotions like doubt. In his humanity, Jesus never doubted. And so that's the reason as we go back and you see Jesus in that scene where he is in the hull of the boat and the boat is being tossed around by the storm and waves are coming over the gunnels of the boat and Jesus is slumbering. Why is he able to sleep? Because his faith was perfect. He never wavered. He was totally devoted. Lord, your will is my will. But John wasn't perfect. And so in his imprisonment, as he's sitting there languishing, he is filled 
with doubt. But he shows us, he shows us what to do with our doubts. What does he do with his doubt? He takes it to Jesus. When doubt, when you are tempted to doubt, we say, is that true? Can Jesus walk on water? Did he raise Lazarus from the dead? Did he himself come back from the dead? Is that true? How do, what do I do with those doubts? Will you take them to him? And seeking Jesus' answer, look, I want you to notice this. In seeking Jesus' answer, do you see what John is doing? When he took that, sent that question to Christ, he is saying, Lord, I recognize that the problem with understanding is here, not there. The problem is me. This is the difference between the believer and the skeptic, you understand. The skeptic arrogantly says, I am the infallible interpreter of all facts. So there's no such thing as doubt, really, because you know everything perfectly. And so you say, I reject that. John was saying, Lord, I don't understand. I don't understand my situation. I don't understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand why you would ordain this. I understand that you have decreed everything from before the foundation of the world, including my imprisonment. I don't understand it. But I recognize the problem is in me, not you. So teach me. That's what John's saying. That's what John did. And that's what we are instructed to do. So let's see, secondly, how Jesus responded to to John's question. When I take my questions of doubt, when I ask Jesus these questions, what do I expect? What's he going to say to me? Well, the second thing we notice is Jesus strengthens the faith of those who seek him in verses 4 through 6. Let's look at Jesus' answer. And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Now, let me ask you a question. What was it that prompted John to ask this question? You'll say, well, he was in prison. Correct. But what what happened? He heard something. What was it? The works of Christ. Remember that? Verse 2, he heard the works of Christ, and this stirred up this question, and so he sent the question to Jesus. And look at how Jesus answers him. He says, tell him about my works. Well, that's kind of a strange answer, isn't it? He's already heard the works. What Jesus is doing here is he's pointing John to the word. John has heard stories. Leper was cleansed. On Thursday, John. Friday, Peter's mother-in-law. Saturday, this fellow Matthew, who was collecting taxes, is now apparently a disciple. We're still wondering about that one. And you see, he's hearing all these stories. And what what Jesus does for for John, he he takes all these stories now, and he says, let me show you what's happening based on what the Word says. I healed a leper. I made the blind see. I gave the deaf his hearing back. 
have raised the dead man. And guess what? The poor have the gospel preached to them. In Isaiah 35... Verse 4, we read, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. There's what John was preaching. Winnowing fork is in his hand. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus is saying, I did all that. He's quoting to him the word. This is what I'm doing, John. You see, all these stories you hear are me fulfilling the word of God. Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Now that's what he's doing with John. As one commentator says, it is as if Jesus were tenderly saying to John, do you remember these prophecies? You remember, John? You know your word. You've read the scrolls. This too was predicted concerning Messiah. And all this is being fulfilled today, namely, in me. So as you seek Jesus' help with your doubts, pray. You confess your sin. Confess him, Lord, I've doubted in this area. I've doubted your creation. I've doubted your resurrection, the virgin birth, whatever it may be. These things, I'm I'm struggling with these things. I'm coming to you. I'm asking you for answers. And then your very next thing is, open your Bible. To listen for his response. But that's not all that Jesus did. He wanted to give John some assurance. And he wants you to be assured. That's why we have the assurance of, of pardon in our service. Look at how he assured John, this last verse, verse 6. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now that's, that's not just a proverb. Jesus has spoken a lot of proverbs. You see, think about the nature of John's doubt. What's he thinking? Am I rejected? Um, what's the Lord doing with me? Am I being disciplined? Is he chastising me for for not speaking clearly or truthfully enough or going somewhere? All the things that your heart might be filled with probably filled John's heart. And this final statement sets up the context of what is to come. Think about it. In chapters 11 to 12, many people are scandalized by Jesus. If he hasn't made you clutch your pearls yet by some of the things that he said, he's about to. Matthew 13, verse 57, and they took offense at him. The they in this passage are his mother and his brothers. Matthew 15, 12 to 14, and the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Calm down. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. In other words, the preaching of Jesus Christ was intended to go through the field like a disc. And it pulls up the weeds, it roots them out, it turns them out, it leaves them out on the plain dry to die. But at the same time, he's sowing new seed that will bear fruit. 
Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. Let the inevitable happen. We're not changing the preaching. So this statement sets up what we're about to go through. But then we notice one very simple thing. That it is Jesus himself who keeps us from falling away. There are a lot of people who doubt. And for some, that temptation to doubt turns into skepticism. They never take, they never take their questions to Christ. They never go to the Word for the answer. They're never yielded to Him. And so what do they wind up doing? They leave. They depart. But Jesus said in John 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. What Jesus is saying is that if you are not offended by his words, if you are not offended by his words, it is not because you are superior to anyone else. It is because you are blessed. If you seek, accept, and apply Christ's word to your life, that is a sign that he has blessed you. Because the Spirit of God enables you to see and understand his works, recognize his person, and remain faithful to him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. There are many who believe for a time and fall away. You probably know some. But all who remain faithful are sustained by the work of God's Spirit. Now let's circle back to John. John wondered, perhaps, whether Jesus had forgotten him in prison. Because if you know those prophecies in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 61, you know there's another part of them that says that Jesus will set the captives free. Jesus reminded John that the sign of his blessing was his faithfulness to Christ. In other words, the fact that you are asking me, John, is a sign that I have blessed you. That I am working in your life. John boldly proclaimed Christ at the beginning of his ministry. And what we have to pay special attention to is this. When faced with arrest and imprisonment over his message, what did John do? Preached on. He did not recant. And John wasn't bold with his message because he was psychologically wired that way. He was bold because Jesus equipped him with boldness. Jesus equipped him with boldness. So Jesus pointed to the boldness and said, see, John, you see, you sat there for a year and a half because you know why you're there clinging to me, asking me this question is because you are blessed by me because blessed is everyone who is not offended by me. Adverse circumstances tempt us to doubt Christ 
But when you handle them properly, taking them to the Lord in prayer and then seeking his answer in his word, what you'll find is that your faith is strengthened. So if you doubt, and not all do, not everyone doubts. But if you do, Jesus instructs you to bring those doubts to him. Bring your doubts to him. Confess them as sin. Seek his forgiveness and then turn to his word for comfort and strength. He is the one that God has sent to bind up the brokenhearted. There's not another one. You might have received sight. You might have had the gospel preached to you in your poverty. You might have been raised to life. You might have been, had your leprosy taken away. You might have had every one of those experiences from the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's only one that Jesus says makes you blessed. It is if you are not offended by him. A sign you are not in the faith is if you care more about others' opinions than about the word of God. But you are blessed by Christ if you hang on to him when circumstances tempt you to turn away. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we, we come before you. I, I think I speak for most of my friends here to say, Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. We are weak. We ask that you would make us strong. Especially, especially, O oh Lord, that you would strengthen our faith, our love for you, that when, when we find ourselves in the grip of doubt, that we would turn to you, that we would look to you for the answers, that we would express faith by coming to you, by turning to your word, by confessing our, the sin of doubt to you and ask that you would give us the faith to overcome that doubt, to look to your word, to, to trust in it. And the testimony that has been born there, forgive us, O oh Father, for our doubting. And make our faith strong and pure. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.